This is the Bible Book Club, where each episode we dive deep into the only book written 2,000 years ago that can still change your life today. Welcome to the club! And welcome to the final episode of Leviticus. You made it through this yeah. book that Susan and I thought was daunting, but we realized was actually a really precious yeah. and informative book for us I to read. I loved it. I loved it. And had so many Bible benders, I guess, because maybe I've never really studied it, but yeah. I loved it. Yeah. So congratulations. Pat yourself on your on the back. You have made it through the third book of the Bible. Yeah. And you can now tell your friends, oh yeah, I just finished a study in Leviticus. How many of them can relate to that? But first, you have to make it through this last episode of this book. <laughs> so let's go back to last week and just kind of catch you up. God laid out a pattern of Sabbaths or the rest for people and for the land. It involved seven days of holy days throughout the year, a Sabbath year, which is every seventh year, and a super Sabbath year called the Jubilee, which was right after the seventh Sabbath year or every 50 years. And this year was a taste of what man had left behind in the garden and of what was to come when the Messiah returns to the world order. It was a year where all property was returned to each family. Debts and servitude was canceled. Yeah, and they just got to sit around and God provided everything they needed during that year and actually the year before, which would have been the seventh Sabbath year. I think we should reinstitute the year of Jubilee. I know, right? It's like a year-long sabbatical where you still get paid. Let's do it. I love it. Family first. We'll be the first to implement <laughs> yeah, exactly. the Jubilee. Exactly. All right, so this episode is an end and a transition in the middle. It is, like Heather said, the end of Leviticus, which is the story of how God provided a way for the people of Israel to live in his holy presence. But this episode is also a transition in the middle of the journey, Moses's lifelong journey and mission to get the people to the promised land. That's what we're in the middle of. This is the scene of where we are today because we've been through a lot of laws. So let's just remember where we are in the narrative of Moses's life and the people's. It is still less than a year since the Israelites left Egypt. They haven't even experienced that second Passover. You know, the first Passover was the original one in Egypt. The Israelites have done nothing but camp at Mount Sinai and listen to the Lord in preparation for their move to the land of Canaan. It's almost kind of like God plucked them out of Egypt and has cocooned them here at Mount Sinai. Well, he taught them that first, they are his treasured possession. They are a holy nation. Exodus 19.5 said, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's what they've been learning about in Leviticus, how to be that holy nation. Second, they learned what what they must do so that he could dwell among them. First, by dealing with their sin through ritual sacrifice in Leviticus 1 through 7, then by setting up the priesthood to administer the rituals in chapters 8 through 10, then by defining ritual purity 
or what could or could not be in contact with His Holiness in chapters 11 through 15. Then by creating a day of atonement, a day that the high priest could enter his presence in chapters 16 and 17, then by outlining moral purity in chapters 18 through 20, then clarifying the priest qualifications in chapters 21 and 22, and lastly, by building into every calendar year, holy days, Sabbaths, and ritual feasts that ensured that their lives would be centered around their relationship with God. That's everything we just learned in Leviticus. Because this, living among his people, is the ultimate purpose for God. That's the whole purpose for Leviticus. How can they be holy so he can live among them? God wants nothing more than to have a relationship with his people. And this is a temporary way to have a relationship until the way Jesus is born from the seed of Israel, the tribe of Judah, as prophesied in the very beginning in Genesis 49, and then reiterated in the end of the Bible in Revelations 5. It says this, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. The Israelites have had so much instruction from this book of Leviticus. The question is, are they ready to face the world? In this episode, before they leave this cocoon at Mount Sinai, God, like a parent walking his 16-year-old out the door with the keys to the car it's for the very thing. first time. I just did it recently. <laughs> exactly. Lays out in this very next chapter, the rewards for doing this right, this becoming a holy nation, and the consequences if they don't. So here we go. Life in the promised land, rewards and consequences. Chapter 26, the reward for obedience is as follows. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves. And do not place a carved stone in your land and bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So first, he just lays out these two things that they have to do. He could have reiterated the entire book of Leviticus. He doesn't. He well, says he's already he's, done it like 14 times. Exactly. So. <laughs> the theme, remember, of this whole book is how to be holy. God is tying holy living to commandment number two from Exodus and commandment number four. Do not worship other gods and worship me regularly by keeping the Sabbath. Now, this one off here, this stone mentioned here was another foreign practice, kind of like a wishing stone that you would kiss with the purpose of having a wish granted. So that's why he threw it in there. Now, what follows next is a series of conditional rewards or blessings. If you obey me, then I will bless you. Verse three. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. 
I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. The if-then conditions for the rewards are this. If you follow my decrees and obey my commands, then God will provide rain resulting in plenty of food. Unlike Egypt, which has the Nile as a water source, Canaan is almost totally dependent on rain. If you follow my decrees and obey my commands, then God will protect them, resulting in peace in the land. Israel, unlike other nations, does not have an experienced army. So fear of conquering the current inhabitants in Canaan must have been frightening to them. If they keep the decrees, then God will favor them, resulting in an increase in numbers and the the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So this is our reference back. Remember, Abraham was promised he would increase and be as numerous as the stars. And now this is passed down to Israel. If they keep the decrees, then God will dwell among them. The presence of God in their midst is reminiscent of Eden. And it is a theme throughout the Bible and will lead into the New Testament to the gift of the Holy Spirit, which dwells within the believer. We are the tabernacle or temple where God dwells. John 16, 7 and 13 say this, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So that's where all this being in the presence of God is leading to, the Holy Spirit. Now, here are the consequences for disobedience. We had the rewards for obedience. Here are the consequences for disobedience. The next section is so much longer, suggesting that the Israelites were more likely to be motivated by fear than reward, aren't we all? God's purpose for these consequences is to turn them from whatever they are being disobedient about. His goal, like any parent is relationship and restoration. And I say that because I don't, it's going to sound harsh what he's going to say, but he has a purpose and he's trying to turn them from their disobedience. These consequences are the antithesis of the blessings Heather just read. The opposite of rain, abundant harvest and food is drought, famine, and starvation. The opposite of peace and safety in the land is war, fear, and annihilation. The opposite of health and fruitfulness is disease and death. The opposite of the Lord dwelling among them is God turning away from them. These are a series of conditional consequences. If you do not obey me, then I will. Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then... I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain, 
because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this, you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. In spite of these things, if you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile toward me, I myself will be hostile toward you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over, and I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you, and you will be given into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven, and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. If, in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then, in my anger, I will be hostile toward you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries. I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. Heather just read five different sections that each began with an if from God. And I wish you could see them all in print because each if, the sentence gets bigger and bigger. Listen to them all together. I'm just going to read the if part. If you will not listen to me. If after all this, you will not listen to me. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me. If you, in spite of all these things, you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile. If, in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger. Five times, plenty of time for them to turn from their ways. The ifs grow until God will get angry. But no, it takes a lot to get to that point. The result for their disobedience is growing punishment and ends in a very scary promise. It says, I will be hostile toward you and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. I don't know what the insertion of myself in there means, but it sounds really bad to me. The specifics of God's final consequence 
ties directly to the two commands he started with, the two commands about worship, do not worship other idols and keep the Sabbath to worship me. What will God do if they worship idols? He stated in verse 30, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. Then he says, what will he do if they do not keep the Sabbath day, year, or jubilee? He will give the land what the Israelites did not give the land, a Sabbath rest. But it will be a Sabbath rest from them, the people. They will get no provision out of it like we learned last week in the Jubilee that God would provide for them. It said this in verse 34. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate, and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived. So if they worship idols and they don't keep the Sabbath, these two things are going to happen. God is in effect reiterating the effects of disobedience that Adam and Eve learned too late. You can obey and live in peace and the land of plenty or disobey and live in the land of terror and toil. Adam and Eve crossed the line and they lost Eden. Israel is going to cross the line and they are going to lose the promised land. Yeah, it's I was a thinking repeat. that as we were reading it. It's like a foreshadowing yes. of everything that's about to happen. They will build the temple, even though it's not the same people that are there now because they weren't allowed to go into the promised land because they disobeyed. God said, your children, will they get there? They rebuild the temple. Now I'm getting, I'm giving away <laughs> all the rest of the next couple of books we're about to read, but they, they build a temple and then they disobey again. And yeah. then the temple gets destroyed. All their enemies mm-hmm. destroy them. And they're, they, de- they're exiled again away from God. Yeah. Away from God and away and, from their land. And the land. Just and like Adam and Eve. trying to get back to it in exactly. some respects today. Exactly. And so if I can bring this into perspective for what this means for you in your life today, because I think that God gave Adam and Eve only one chance. And mm-hmm. God here is telling us that he gave the Israelites five chances before he imposed those consequences. I don't know if it's one chance or five chance or 50 chances, because then later in the Bible, it says 77 chances. And he's still giving them chances. And he's still giving them chances. <laughs> but how many chances does he give you? Mm-hmm. I know in my life, I've sinned more times than I care to admit. And I like to think that I learned from some of the major, major sins. I'm sure there's still minor ones that I keep on repeating and God's totally frustrated with me and he's like over it and he's about to impose another consequence even as I'm saying this. But um, there are times though when do you look back and you recognize, okay, now I've learned this same lesson twice. Yeah. And do you recognize that it might be a consequence that had to be imposed on you that could have been avoided had you just mm-hmm. followed God and done what he asked? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times this, all this stuff sounds really harsh, right? But it's it just comes down to your desire to be obedient. And you said something, Susan, that most people... Um, they would rather not have the consequence than than, than the reward. Mm-hmm. Gosh, or they're more we, motivated. They're more they're motivated. motivated by they're their, more motivated by, by fear, fear than by 
reward. How do we get to a place where we're more motivated by the reward than we are afraid of the consequence? Gosh, those consequences are terrible. And how many times have you been at the end of your rope, the very bottom or what you perceive to be the bottom at that time, and then you cry out to God? Well, I'm going to pull a Heather and say it all comes down to love, which is what you normally say, because the truth of the matter is the title of this episode is I will remember you. Will you remember me? When we love someone, we often stop ourselves from doing the selfish thing or the disobedient thing because we care more for them than we care for our own selfish whatever we want. And in this case, this was the problem with the Israelites. They just didn't love God more than the temptation surrounding them. And sometimes you think you do, but But, your actions prove otherwise. Yeah. So what do you need to turn from today? That's the question for you. What do you need to look to his word? And and if you're in the middle of a crisis, how can you be introspective about that and find out what are the things that I might be breaking God's command about? And Turn from your ways and Mm -hmm. repent and turn towards him so he can give you all these blessings because they're just there waiting for you. He wants to dole those out. He doesn't enjoy, he doesn't take joy in the anger that happens after he has to impose those consequences. Yeah. Oh, very true. Well, the sad other thing about this whole thing is that, you know, God really wanted them to stand out as a nation and draw other nations to him. But the devastation of the promised land would have also been humiliating humiliating, because to the ancient cultures surrounding them, the devastation would have been a sign that their God was angry with them. And that is going to happen. And then it's going to kind of not want, draw other nations to their God because their God has right. failed. They, they would think that, that their God was no longer powerful. Right. And we all know he is. Okay, keep going. Verse 36, as for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a windblown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword and they will fall. Even though no one is pursuing them, they will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also, because of their ancestors' sins, they will waste away. The picture God is painting for the Israelites is one of absolute terror, a terror so great. It sounds as if it's living within their mind, as if it were a a spiritual terror that lived within them mentally. It says they flee even though no one is pursuing them. The final description of the people of Israel is so pitiful. It is worse than their slavery in Egypt because it says they will perish among the nations devoured by their enemies. God is issuing more than just a warning. And God can do that because he is omniscient and his words are prophetic. Now, I wonder what Moses was thinking, because Moses knows the Israelites better than anyone else, and he knows how prone they are to misbehave. So I am picturing him just getting sick to his stomach when he's listening to these consequences, or perhaps because his faith had grown by so much by this time, perhaps um, his confidence in God was so great that he knew God would be faithful no matter how many times Israel disobeyed. The Israelites are going to fall, but they do not perish because God is full of mercy and grace. And much later in the Old Testament, in Micah seven eighteen, it says this, Who is a God 
like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our inequities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Micah is remembering those promises to those heroes of old, and he knows that God will bring them back. Even at the time that he is writing this, there is only a remnant left. And Micah was a minor prophet, right? Mm -hmm. And he was talking about Jesus there, right? Correct, because Jesus is going to hurl their, he's going to tread their sins in her foot and hurl their iniquities into the depths of the sea. So if you were despairing listening to all of those consequences. <laughs> the hope is on the way. <laughs> yeah. Take heed that everything is going to be fine. But God, he always provides a way home. Verse 40, but if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God." But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. From Adam to Abraham and from Abraham to the nation of Israel, all God has ever wanted is for his people to return the loyalty and dependence on him that people enjoyed before the fall. Well, only two people enjoyed it. Exactly, but there were two. God reiterates this twice to make sure they get it. I will remember my covenant. The question is, will they? The question is, will we? Then God places a final, really cool, pointed signature on Leviticus. It is a 7 times 7, 49th time finish. For the final and 49th time in the book of Leviticus, God states the only thing the Israelites need to remember. He says, I am the Lord. It is no coincidence that this phrase, I am the Lord, is placed 49 times in this book of instructions to the new nation of Israel on the brink of their departure into the world. Every law God has made has been to protect and direct the Israelites to faithfulness in him. Every holy day, every seventh day, seventh year, seven times seventh year or jubilee has been put in place so they will remember God and keep his covenant that he has promised to keep himself. God is symbolically screaming to them, I am the Lord. I will remember you. Will you remember me? Those four words, I am the Lord, should mean so much to them by now. 
so much to the Israelites at this point that disobedience should be out of the question for us because we've actually read I am the Lord 49 times. What does I am the Lord mean to us? Every single move God makes, every word he says has a meaning. That's why on this podcast, we read every single word of every book in the Bible. And you, our dear, dear podcast listeners, have almost made it through every word of Leviticus. Law school is quickly coming to a close. Hallelujah, Jesus. No, we loved it. No, I was just kidding. <laughs> Verse 46. These are the decrees, the laws and the regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. This last sentence is a very fitting close for Leviticus, but it's not to be. For some unknown reason, God and Moses threw in a few more rules. Although everyone acknowledges this was probably the end, many believe that the next chapter is an appendix to the book. However, it is a connection to chapters 25 and 26 as the final chapter right here, 27, provides a few more laws for life in the promised land, specifically regarding people or objects dedicated to the Lord. So that's interesting. Did the, did, did in what you read, did it say that that appendix was written by Moses or was it added by somebody else? Still Moses, but it, it was, it may have been added later. No one really knows for sure, but they do feel like 26 was the end, it made the final point because he says, I am the Lord and these are the decrees and laws, kind of closing up all of law school. But then they threw a little bit more on. So I don't know if it came after. We'll never really know. But let me explain this concept because it was a little bit new to me. I hadn't thought about this. When something was dedicated to God, it meant that it was given to the Lord for service in the tabernacle. Now, vows, and these are going to be vows, they were voluntary, unlike the sacrifice sacrifices we've discussed throughout Leviticus, which were required. So what we're going to talk about is something that is dedicated with a vow by the people. And vows were given for different reasons. For example, to express gratitude for safety in a dangerous situation. Or my favorite example is from 1 Samuel 1, Hannah made a vow to dedicate her child to the Lord if the Lord would just give her a child. She was so upset about being barren. Now, vows of this kind required great sacrifice because in this case, it was her only child. Therefore, God is going to, in these laws, provide an out by allowing them to redeem or buy back their vow, whatever they've dedicated to the Lord. So here's chapter 27. This is the rule about dedicating people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord by giving the equivalent value, set the value of a male between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. For a female, set her value at 30 shekels. For a person between the ages of five and 20 set the value of a male at 20 shekels and a female at 10 shekels. For a person between one month and five years, set the value of a male at five shekels of silver and that of a female at three shekels of silver. For a person 60 years old or more, set the value of a male at 15 shekels and of a female at 10 shekels. If anyone making the vow is too poor to pay the specified amount, the person being dedicated is to be presented to the priest who will set the value according to what the one making the vow can afford. Okay, so this is these are the prices to redeem the person. These are the prices set out if you wanted to um, 
pay to have the person released from their service in the tabernacle. And remember, they're not selling them to other people. They're dedicating them to the service of the Lord in the tabernacle or in the area that they live. All of the commentaries agree the price is not based on the person's intrinsic value. Rather, it is related to a person's ability to perform physical labor in an agrarian society. Good, because I was about to get really mad that no, they're valuing no, yeah. the women less than men. No, actually, which we know they did. Actually, it kind of when they explain it, it values the women as more because in the case of women, childbearing and rearing were so highly valued and prioritized that they um, and and actually have been commanded by God, who says, "Be fruitful, multiply." So it's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you want those women to keep having babies. That this, but this would have made them less valuable for work in the field. They could do less labor physically, and that's just a fact. Because they were always getting pregnant. Like, they they just wanted to keep it going. And so, it's just how, based on how much work they could do in the field. So, it didn't mean they were in, intrinsically worthless. Now, know that just because a child was dedicated, it did not mean that women were turning over their infants to the priests. In the case of Hannah, which we will read when we get to Samuel, she uh, waited till Samuel was weaned, which would have been around four back then. Now, that still sounds really young to Mm -hmm. us and everything, but again, their love for the Lord was so great, and it's such a beautiful story. She's pouring out her heart to the priest, and and God, you know, she's saying, if you'll just give me a child, I will dedicate him to um, the Lord's service. And, you know, Samuel ends up being a great prophet. Mm -hmm. So it's got two books named after him. So there you go. All right. Here's dedicating animals to the Lord with a vow. Verse 9. If what they vowed is an animal that is acceptable as an offering to the Lord, such an animal given to the Lord becomes holy. They must not exchange it or substitute a good one for a bad one or a bad one for a good one. If they should substitute one animal for another, both it and the substitute become holy. If what they vowed is a ceremonially unclean animal, one that is not acceptable as an offering to the Lord, the animal must be presented to the priest who will judge its quality as good or bad. Whatever value the priest then sets, that is what it will be. If the owner wishes to redeem the animal, a fifth must be added to its value. So this makes sense to me. No trickery here. And, you know, maybe the Lord gives you this great uh, crop of new little animals and you decide in your joy over being so blessed that you're going to give a really good one to the Lord and you give it to the priests to, for their service. You can't go back and go, oh, darn, I shouldn't have given that one. He's really great. Let me swap one out. <laughs> can't do that. And then if you wanted to redeem him, you have to add a fifth to the value. Because, of course, the priests have been feeding this little animal all that time. So it makes sense to me. Okay, dedicating property to the Lord. Verse 14. If anyone dedicates their house as something holy to the Lord, the priest will judge its quality as good or bad. Whatever value the priest then sets, so it will remain. If the one who dedicates their house wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value, and the house will again become theirs. If anyone dedicates to the Lord part of their family land, its value is to be set according to the amount of seed required for it, 50 shekels of silver to a homer of barley seed. If they dedicate a field during the year of Jubilee, the value that has been set remains. But if they dedicate a field after the Jubilee, the priest will determine the value according to the number of years that remain until the next year of Jubilee, and its set value will be reduced. If the one who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value, and the field will 
will again become theirs. If, however, they do not redeem the field or if they have sold it to someone else, it can never be redeemed. When the field is released in the Jubilee, it will become holy, like a field devoted to the Lord. It will become priestly property. If anyone dedicates to the Lord a field they have bought, which is not part of their family land, the priest will determine its value up to the year of Jubilee, and the owner must pay its value on that day as something holy to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field will revert to the person from whom it was bought, the one whose land it was. Every value is to be set according to the sanctuary shekel, 20 geras to the shekel. So similar to the rules that we learned during the Jubilee, all the property kind of goes back to people in the year of Jubilee and it's valued based on how much was put into it with seed. And if they want to redeem it, it's calculated by adding that fifth back and then it goes back. But in the meantime, the priests get the use of the land and can probably rent it out to other people to to plant on it or plant themselves. But I don't know if they really did that back then. Okay, here's what cannot be dedicated to the Lord. Verse 26. No one, however, may dedicate the firstborn of an animal since the firstborn already belongs to the Lord. Whether an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's. If it is one of the unclean animals, it may be brought back at its set value, adding a fifth of the value to it. If it is not redeemed, it is to be sold at its set value. Firstborns already belong to the Lord as commanded in Exodus 13, and that's why they cannot be given as a vow because that's like double dipping. Oh, so really, if Hannah's firstborn would have been given to the Lord anyway? Good question. But no, I think it pertained to animals. Ah. Verse 28, but nothing that a person owns and devotes to the Lord, whether human being or an animal or family land, may be sold or redeemed. Everything so devoted is most holy to the Lord. In some cases, the item devoted was devoted permanently. If so, you can't sell what you have already given to God, so there's no redemption price. Verse 29, no person devoted to destruction may be ransomed. They are to be put to death. Okay, lots of interpretations about this one. I'm going to land on this interpretation. These were men banned or taken as prisoner from war or other crimes against God, and they could not be bought back. They had to die. And further down the line, we're going to have some examples even of Saul, who was told, you know, you are to kill everybody, you know, when he had wars. And he didn't. He kept a couple people alive and he got in trouble, one of them being a king. Verse 30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth to the value. Every tithe of the land, herd, and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If anyone does make substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. This is the first time the Israelites are commanded to tithe, although it's not a new concept. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek way back in Genesis 14, season one, episode 14. Tithes can be redeemed, but for an added one-fifth. Verse 34, these are the commands the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. In the book of Leviticus, 
the story of how God provided a way for the people of Israel to live in his holy presence. The question is this, going forward as we journey into Numbers, will they obey? The answer lies in the launch of a new season for Bible Book Club, season four. The book of Numbers begins next episode. Numbers is a return to the narrative. It is a story of twists and turns, disappointments, and disasters for Moses and for the people. For those of us who've experienced life in a proverbial desert, Numbers is an encouraging story of our predisposition to be unfaithful to God and of God's promise to be faithful to us. Yeah, and I feel like he gives them way more than five chances in the book of Numbers. He still does, but we'll read about it next book. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.